0: Welcome to AMDG, I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. One of my all-time favorite teachers is Professor Kathleen Cavaney, who's now at Boston College. She is the first faculty member in the history of the school to hold joint appointments in both the theology department and the law school. She has made her unique career at the intersection of faith, morality, and law, and she's the author of four books and hundreds of articles in both scholarly journals and magazines like Commonweal and America. Professor Cavaney is a brilliant teacher and writer who's able to make complex topics accessible even to non-experts like me, so I asked if she'd talk to me about some concepts in the areas of faith and politics that I didn't understand, like constitutional originalism and intrinsic evil. We also talked about how we might approach thorny issues like abortion and gun control as people of faith in a pluralistic society. I learned so much from this conversation, and I'm almost tempted to apply to BC Law School. This is the fourth of five podcasts in our series on faith and politics leading up to the election. The last one will be in your feeds the Monday of election week a couple of days earlier than usual. See all of our related Faith and Politics coverage at jesuits.org election2020. Well, Professor Kathleen Cavaney, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, How are you?
1: I am great. Thank you so much for asking. It's a beautiful fall here in New England, and Boston College, I think, is just a a lovely place to uh, be a professor and to be a student. I just wish the pandemic would end soon so we could all appreciate (laughs) each other's company and enjoying the beautiful surroundings.
0: Sure, so how have you been holding up in the the middle of all this?
1: Well, the pandemic is hard, I think, for everyone. And I think one of the hardest things about the pandemic is that you're forced to confront your own limitations, not just the limitations of time. One of the funniest videos on on Saturday Night Live, I think it was last week, was, you know, was an offer of a service, you know, eBay to come and take all the things that you thought you were going to learn how to do during the pandemic, you know, play the harp, you know, learn to play the guitar, cook uh learn a foreign language. and you know, we all had all the time in the world to do this, but you know, very few of us actually did this. And so it was just a funny skit where eBay offered to kind of take it, pack it up and and sell it so you wouldn't have to confront the signs of your own you know limited will, your own weakness of will. And, uh, and I'm, I'm afraid I suffered from that too. I thought I was going to really learn to be a good cook and I'm still a very good microwaver.
0: <laughs> well, I, I have a sourdough starter in our fridge that uh, eBay can come take if they want. Uh, when I was, you know, ambitious about that. Um, well, I you're so you are a performer professor of mine. I had you like a dozen years ago in grad school for a three week course. But I loved the, the class. We were talking a little bit of uh, reminiscing before uh, coming on live today. So when I've been kind of looking at stuff that's been going on with this election, questions about different candidates, questions about how Catholics might vote or participate in politics. You just kept coming to mind for me as someone who kind of lives at that intersection of faith, morality, law, all those big questions that I've written about it a lot and thought about it, taught about it. So I I just wanted to dive into some of these big things that are coming up. So
1: Thank you for taking the class. And it's the nicest thing a teacher can ever hear is that a course actually made a difference to someone's life. So you made my day.
0: Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. No, certainly. And I, so after we had set up talking, so we're talking, um, in like the week of October, like twenties, um, Pope Francis just yesterday, as we we're speaking, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, there was news that he had announced uh, through a documentary. Now there's some questions about where that interview originally came from, uh, that he was supportive of uh, civil unions for mm-hmm. gay couples, uh, though, though not marriage, but that there could be some kind of legal protection and that we wouldn't want to kick gay folks out of our families, uh, out of our church family. I just, so just curious to your reaction when you saw that news uh, as someone who kind of follows a lot of this stuff uh, for a living.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I think uh, I think it'll be interesting to find out how the story broke, actually, whether this was an old statement of his that was suddenly revivified or um, just actually something he said. I, I know there are a lot of Catholics who are, you know, kind of confused and concerned about that statement because they think that, it can't be reconciled with Catholic teaching on um, on the immorality of, of, of homosexual activity. Uh, and, and I understand their point of view, but I think there's a different way of looking at that that, that doesn't require you to, you know, to dissent from church teaching, but requires you to put it in a kind of broader perspective about what some of the the purposes of the secular law are. Um, First off, just to show, I I think Pope Francis is very clear that under Catholic teaching, uh, people, um, same sex partners can't get sacramentally married. That is not on the table for him. But what he's distinguishing is, what are the purposes of sacramental marriage on the one hand and secular law on the other? And and here, I think you get into the tension that, you know, um, that I tried to talk about in uh, in my book between kind of the, um, the ordering purposes of law. On the one hand, we've got to make do with the people we got and the society we have, and we have to make things work pretty well. And then on the other hand, the pedagogical function of law, the notion that the law is going to hold itself out to a higher standard. And I think on the pedagogical function of law, you could say, well, there are two teachings that are at stake. One teaching is the teaching that, you know, that the only acceptable uh, sexual activity for, um, according to the Catholic Church is between married people, men and women who are married in a lifelong partnership But the other teaching is the absolute dignity, the absolute uh, fact that everybody is made in the image and likeness of God, including people whose lives don't reflect the purity of the former teaching. So you've got two sets of pedagogical functions that are at stake. And then on the actual notion that law is supposed to order society, allow us to kind of move forward in our day-to-day basis. You could say that in our current pluralistic society there are a lot of people who are in same-sex partnerships they have children and you know whether uh, the church like likes it or not they they need a bundle of rights and responsibilities to become a stable part of our society and to contribute to the common good and the way they can and one way a lawyer might think of a civil union is, provi- is as almost like an off-the-rack legal suit, as providing a standard set of responsibilities and rights and 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 capacities, a sort of default set of options. Same-sex couples could approximate that by drawing up separate contracts, by go getting living wills, by, you know, doing all, by adopting, you know, one another's children, all sorts of things of that sort. But the the bundle of rights and responsibilities that they want and need to be stable members of the society is in this package called civil union. So I think it makes sense for a society at this point in time to provide people who are in those relationships with these protections and also give them these responsibilities and 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 it's uh and the fact is that the church has recognized that this is the case and in a lot of other circumstances as well so i mean the church also teaches that you're not allowed to be divorced and remarried right um and but uh, uh you know in in the in the sense of that that violates your commitments uh, as a married person um and that's not just you know they believe that's true of marriage The the official teachers of the church uh the teaching is not simply of um You know, of of sacramental marriage. But at the same time, we recognize that people get divorced and remarried and we recognize that civil law has to provide for people who are in second civil marriages because the well-being of the whole society depends upon it. So I think it's possible for Catholics, even Catholics who accept every jot and tittle of the sexual ethics of, of the tradition, To say, yes, we understand why Pope Francis is saying we need to have civil unions. It's the same reason why we provide people who are in second marriages with rights and responsibilities. But that in and of itself doesn't undermine the church teaching about sacramental marriage. We're talking about different elements of the common good here.
0: I think about, you know, the ways that there would be certain Catholic values that we would say we need to make sure these are upheld in law and we're going to you know, advocate and fight for whether it's the right to right to life. And others would say like, oh, that's imposing your morality, your vision of when human life starts to try to you know, make abortion something that is not legal versus other things, like you said, divorce that wouldn't be, wouldn't, there's not, not a big Catholic movement fighting for divorce to be outlawed, right? Things that the church would say are, are you know, not acceptable, as you said, but they're not There's not a push to make them illegal in civil law. Like, where? How do you like? Is there a tension there between times in which we do say like, no, there are things from our tradition we do want to be either you know prevented, versus times when we'll say like, we under we're saying that this is evil or not not a good thing, but we're not trying to like make it illegal in civil law. Is that? Do you understand what I'm asking?
1: I do, and I think we need to step back and say, well, what is the purpose? Of of the uh, of the law and how what what are the virtues of a good law, and and I think that you know a, a lot of times Catholics focus on um, Catholics in the pews focus on the moral message of the law. So the pedagogical function is is certainly an important message, but acts of law aren't acts of magic. Right. It's not like the old television so bewitched where you pass the law and everybody goes, oh, of course, we've got to do this now. Um, So, you know, when when you go into Aquinas, treatise on law, I wrote a book called Law's Virtues that talks about that, that says there are two sets of virtues that good law has to do or has to embody. One set of virtues has to do with the content of its moral message. But the other set of virtues that law has to embody are are in a way more practical. They say, well, is it according to the custom of the country? Is it suitable to place and time? Is it something that most people can follow and will follow, or is it something that um, that's just going to provoke a massive backlash and disobedience in a way that, that's going to undermine the rule of law itself. And I think one example is, you know, if you go back to prohibition, you know, the people who fought for prohibition weren't just talking about narrow personal morality. They weren't just saying, well, you know, you're going to be so much healthier, and you're going to live so much longer and you're going to be able to fight COVID so much better. Well, not that they had COVID back then. If you don't drink, it's. it wasn't just about narrow personal morality. If you go back and read the, the prohibitionists, they were really concerned with the effect of drink on families, especially women and children, because a lot of the men you know, who were subject to this would go out, spend the meager wages in the saloon and come home and there'd be family violence, there would be abuse, there would be starvation. There was a whole set of social ills that they were fighting, not, not necessarily um, just uh, private morality. And so we, we passed an amendment to the constitution that, you know, banned alcohol, prohibition. But it turned out that although the moral message was good, you know, and and the motive was pure, that in fact, that law, that extremely uh, uh, prohibitionary law didn't coincide with either what most people thought, because, you know, a lot of people thought, well, it's one thing to drink. It's another thing to drink in excess. We have to have a way of looking at things in terms of circumstance. And because it was so easily flouted, and flouting created, you know, the possibilities for so much corruption. So, the you know the the people who were uh, just uh, hiding alcohol, selling alcohol, bootleggers, all of that created a a, a market um, in the in in the seamy underworld that actually undermined um, the rule of law. So when you think about how to address something legally, even something that affects the common good, because we care about the common good, we have to think about whether the measures are going to work, not just in the abstract, not just in some ideal society, but in our own society.
0: I want to turn now to uh, talking a little bit about a feature of the law that has come up—a big conversation connected to the presidential election, which is uh, has been the nomination of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. By the time this episode comes out, I think the sen- full Senate will have voted, and she'll probably be, um, you know, passed. Her nomination will be passed, and she'll be member of the Supreme Court. But one thing that's come up around her nomination is the concept of originalism—a commitment to interpreting the Constitution in a particular way. I realize when I hear that thrown around, I don't know what that means very much, besides like a one sentence definition. I'm not even sure if that's right. So I was wondering if you could help explain like what originalism is and then like, what are other ways of interpreting the constitution?
1: Well, um, originalism as it, I mean, I think it's a little bit in terms of context. I mean, debates about interpretation of the constitution don't arise in a vacuum. They're not primarily, um, you know, about people arguing in an Ivy covered uh, seminar room. So wh- what happened really f- for the production of originalism in, in in our context was, there were a line of cases, uh, uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, then um, Eisenstadt versus Baird, then Roe v. Wade, which found a right to privacy in the penumbras of the Constitution, you know, they pulled it. it was, there was no explicit right to privacy in the text, uh, but they um, they found it, you know, implicit in the other rights th- that are listed in the Bill of Rights and elsewhere in the Constitution. And so, Griswold versus Connecticut protected a, a right to privacy, which included the right of married people to use contraception and the privacy of their own home. And then Eisenstadt versus Baird extended that right to privacy to the right of unmarried people to purchase and by implication use contraception. And and then Roe v. Wade extended the right to privacy to include the right of a woman together with her physician to um, to decide whether or not to continue the pregnancy. And so some people felt that this was just an abuse of the power of the judiciary by finding rights in the Constitution that weren't you know, enumerated in the constitution and didn't seem, you know, to the people, uh, you know, that were reading these opinions really to be well rooted in it. And, and they felt that this was a kind of, uh, you know, judicial activism. So they, they started to think about, well, what kind of a philosophy of constitutional interpretation would protect us against Um, you know, uh, judicial activism. And so originalism kind of came up in in that context. Uh, It it, it says, well, no, what we need to do when we interpret the Constitution isn't focus on, you know, what we think is growing out of the Constitution, but to focus on, you know, how we think uh, the Constitution was interpreted in the time and place and in which it was passed. We're going to um, give the meaning uh, that it would have been given to um, either by the framers themselves or by the common understanding at the time that the relevant provisions were were passed. So originalism is is, is really an opposition theory to what the originalists see, think of as um, kind of unbridled judicial activism masquerading as constitutional interpretation. Other theory, the other large theory of, of constitutional interpretation is what's called, uh, you know, kind of a living constitutional method, which says, you know, look, the Constitution is really, um, is really a document that is, uh, you know, is meant to govern over a whole period of time. and the, the words that are used are very often very vague words, um, and, and so they have to be keyed to not only what they meant back then, or, but, but what they mean now. Um, so, for example, you know, one of the, the better examples would be, you know, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, you know, do you in- interpret what counts as cruel and unusual punishment in terms of, you know, what the framers meant by cruel and unusual punishment? Or do we refer to our current standards of, of, of what counts as uh, cruel and unusual punishment? Um, so at, at times, you know, you've got mixed theories of constitution. Some people want to have an originalist interpretation that recognizes that the framers intended that some words are um, are tied to are indexed to contemporary standards, while other words aren't, um, then it becomes a question of, of, of which uh, words are, are, you know, tied to what they meant, you know, under common understanding in the, you know, in the 19th century and which words are, are, are understood the way they should be understood today. So it gets very complicated. Um, I'm not a fan of originalism, uh, because I think it's for two reasons. And this is just my own view. I think it's a reactive theory. I mean, I think it's a theory that's been kind of developed in order to stop, uh, you know, what people thought of as bad decisions. But I think a proper understanding of a living constitution can also critique too great a role or too expansive a role of judicial power, I think part of what you need to do is recognize, you know, in my view, that that what you're talking about is a constitution. And so when I think about the intent of the framers um, and I think about what would have been a reasonable interpretation of, of their intent, they knew they were building for a time that they would not see. They knew they were building for a time that would have different challenges than they could even anticipate. And so I think they designed the Constitution to be flexible enough to be able to handle those challenges. I think what's more important in thinking about the Constitution are two things. One, the value, or three things, the value of precedent. The Constitution was adopted within the context of a common law system, which saw change as being incremental, um, change as something that you know occurs in conti- continuity by developing with reference to decisions that had come before. So I think that that's one thing. And I think that focusing on this would focus on the relationship of you know, the continuing impact of the English common law tradition, which England today still has an unwritten constitution. And, and the developmental model that comes out of that and 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 what the framers thought the law was and what a constitution should be that's one thing the, the second thing is I think the Constitution is just as much a, a chart a, a charter in political theory as it is a charter in you know just law. So what is the type of government? Um, and what are the checks and balances that the Constitution is putting in place, and and how are are those uh, challenges uh, most uh, most uh, you know pressing today? I think that that's a, a very second question to add, uh, to ask. And then the third question is a little bit off. Um, I would really love, and I'm going to try to do it, to to find a way. to to pull together some biblical scholars and some constitutional scholars and talk about the challenges of biblical interpretation and constitutional interpretation together. Because the Constitution is in fact, our nation's sacred text, right? Along with the Bill of Rights. And we've got a lot of experience in biblical interpretation uh, across the board Looking at, you know, how do you interpret a text that's unwieldy, that has various pieces from various times, and, and, and interpret it as the charter of a whole community, um, you know, and, and bringing it together, not simply as tiny little bits and pieces, but as, as, as having a holistic message. Um, So I think some of the questions that are coming in in biblical interpretation or have long come in in biblical interpretation are those that constitutional scholars are dealing with, whether they recognize it or not. And it would be interesting to have uh, those two sets of of people have a conversation about that. So I will say on the podcast, if anybody wants to fund my project, you have my email.
0: Um, All right.
1: All right. And and what worries me as well about originalism, and I think it's kind of ironic that it's being pushed by, you know, so many Catholics, including conservative Catholics, is that, you know, in my view, it resonates more with a fundamentalist Protestant notion of, of biblical interpretation than it does with any Catholic interpretation, which is always recognized that the text is interpreted in the context of a community with a view to the common good
0: okay great well i feel like great i learned that.
1: i mean that was more than you wanted No,
0: i learned i feel like i learned a lot and now i just have to figure out how to distill it put it in an essay give it back to you and see you know we can uh, see if i will pass uh but no it's i do find that really super helpful mind. and i i want to keep going in terms of the uh let's dig into a little bit of some of these terms that i keep hearing that i don't really understand so sure. another term I know you have written about that's been connected to Catholics and political life is intrinsic evil. It's something that we hear like from the bishops in uh, the faithful citizenship document, which is kind of our, like a voter guide from the U.S. bishops. It's something you hear a lot about that, hey, as Catholics, we should not be supporting intrinsic evils when we go. We should not be supporting candidates who support intrinsic evils. Uh, and that's intrinsic evil sounds scary to me. I, I, it sounds like a very bad thing. Um, so I, I don't I don't want to support intrinsic evil, but I also want to know more about what that mean so what is intrinsic evil and then how helpful or not is it to us as we're trying to make our way uh, in this pluralistic society
1: well um, that's a that's a funny way you started intrinsic evil sounds like one of those video games that you buy on late-night television right I mean it, you know it's it does sound scary and I, in a way I think that the that the term as it's used in the contemporary discussion has more to do with its rhetorical impact than its technical meaning, because um, what sounds like it's it's something that belongs in a, you know, uh, kind of a big budget Will Smith movie, Intrinsic Evil, you know, uh, (laughs) the sequel uh, of is actually something that, you know, is is more akin to a term in a tax code, at least in Catholic moral theology. So it's a a term that's developed over the century. Some people actually have argued, well, it's a fairly, you know, late modern term. It isn't even really, you know, a term that goes even all the way back to Aquinas. But what it's come to mean has a very technical meaning. It refers to an act that is wrong not by reason of its circumstance or its motive, but by reason of its object. It's the kind of act that is always wrong to perform. So to say that an act is always wrong to perform doesn't mean that it's always extremely seriously wrong to perform it. So whether it's wrong and how serious or wrong it is are two separate questions. So, for example, intentionally killing the innocent, which the church teaches encompasses abortion, is always intrinsically wrong. But church also teaches that lying is intrinsically wrong. You're never supposed to lie. The church teaches that fornication is always wrong. The church teaches that adultery is always wrong. The church teaches that masturbation is always wrong. You've got a whole list of things that are intrinsically evil, some of which can be serious and other of which are not so serious. And then there are also many acts that are extremely seriously wrong that are not intrinsic evil because the circumstance means that it's, um, you know, always, you know, that it's dangerous to perform them under these circumstances. So for example, driving while drunk is not always wrong. You can imagine a situation where you might need to drive after, you know, four beers or something, you know, maybe you're up in the, in the hills in California and the fire is at your house and you have to get your family out, but you know, you'd been watching TV and you didn't see the fire come. Um, so driving under those circumstances, under the influence of alcohol, would be okay. But under most circumstances, as 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 things like Mothers Against Drunk Driving have showed, just driving while drunk is extremely dangerous, and you shouldn't do it. And it's good that we have laws against it. So um, I think that you know what we need to focus on isn't so much just Whether an act is intrinsic evil, but when you think about like how it compares to other issues of justice and what the Pope has told us is that, yes, abortion is a serious problem with injustice, but so is the treatment of immigrants, you know, so is capital punishment. So are, uh, so is the way we're treating the economy. Um, So are our treatment of refugees. There are many issues of justice and injustice that we have to focus on. And that's the focus of the law, not whether um, it's intrinsically evil or not.
0: That brings me to another sometimes related term connected to intrinsic evil. Sometimes I hear, um folks talk about a phrase uh, prudential judgment which again sounds like something i really want like i want prudential judgment i want to judge well to be informed and to make my decisions but often i hear it used in like say this context people talking about issues that catholics should be really be caring about when they go to the polls or when they get involved in politics (laughs) is that there are certain things whether they're intrinsic evils or kind of non-negotiables things that are matters of doctrine that we really need to you know we really need to be committed to so outlawing abortion protecting the institution of marriage religious freedom you know some examples of these these things that are non-negotiables and then but the other things can be left to prudential judgment which would leave room to disagree about things like immigration the economy war and peace um but to me i, I hear that to me it sounds like kind of like a dog whistle but like i think that prudential judgment should be used all the time like what when people are using that, is that also kind of a technical term? Um, what does prudential judgment mean to you? And, and
1: how well, does first it apply? I want to say that non-negotiables is not a term of Catholic moral theology. I mean, you know, it, it actually arose, and this is so ironic, out of the protest movements of the 1960s, you know, it was on the, on the left and the more radical that you'd get the term, these are non-negotiables. So I find it very interesting and, and somewhat disheartening, but also very ironic and kind of funny that conservative Catholics are adopting this term that actually came out of a very different context in order to, um, you know, to advance their agenda. Uh, so let's set aside non-negotiables. Um, the term prudence, um, well, what worries me about the way they talk about the term prudence Is that there, you know, that this use of the term prudence reduces the virtue of practical reason, of what Aristotle and Aquinas talked about as right reason about things to be done, almost to something that admits of. You know, no discussion whatsoever. It's almost just a matter of taste. Well, we focus on the non-negotiables. And then when it comes to prudential judgment, you know, it's your private matter. You like potato. I like potato. We have different prudential judgment. But prudential judgment is applying moral principles and an assessment of the facts in a way to advance the common good. And some aspects of that can be subject to... Um, you know, to legitimate disagreement, but other aspects of it can't. And it's always done in the context of discussion and responsible commitments to the to the facts. So I don't think you can say, Pope Francis has said you can't say, uh, you know, oh, well, climate change is a matter of prudential judgment. I don't happen to believe in climate change, so therefore I'm not going to vote on anything having to do with climate change. You know, we Catholics believe that in in, in that truth governs both propositions about how the world operates as well as as moral truth. And we believe the two are intimately connected. So you have to pay attention to the best reading of the facts by listening to the people, Aquinas would say, who are experts on this by taking counsel and making the best decisions you can by... um, by reading and studying, uh, prudence is is an obligation. It's not a way of dismissing obligations.
0: So I want to think, like maybe tangibly, about something like the way we address abortion. Right that it seems again in some of those arguments that like it seems to that there is one way, which is the way we approach it to eliminate abortion by again, make by overturning Roe v. Wade and then passing laws to make it illegal versus like some of these other topics where we could have a whole bunch of different approaches. Like, Oh, we all agree poverty is bad, but there's a whole bunch of different ways that we could, could fight poverty. But to me, I think about like, well, shouldn't there be a whole bunch of different ways just because I'm committed to ending abortion as a pro-life Catholic, couldn't there be a lot of different ways to approach, um, making abortion something of the past that are not necessarily directly down this one pathway? Aren't there other ways? Couldn't I use prudential judgment in this case with the goal of eliminating abortion, but not necessarily following the same tactics? So I'm just, yeah, curious again about that. As you said earlier, something like prohibition it was a good idea. It didn't quite work. At the same time, I, I feel myself thinking like even if you know gun owners in certain places aren't ready to give up their guns, we should have laws that say like they can't have certain types of weapons, even if they're not ready, because they'll learn or because it'll protect the common good. Um, so I, I'm trying to navigate all of this. Like what? How do we? How do we do that? Um, yeah, I don't know. This, that's a well, lot. to think I, about.
1: I think you're entirely right. I think that the pro life movement, you know, understandably, um, but ultimately, I think. You know, not correctly, has has committed, has tried to commit uh, Catholics not only to a value, but to a judgment about the best way of achieving that value. And prudence is, is 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 the virtue of practical reason. So it's concerned both with what we do and what kind of person we are morally, but it's also concerned with judgments about what will work and and what's likely to facilitate that value best in the. In the current situation. and I, I think that the conversation we need to have really goes back to what I was talking about about, you know what is the purpose and the and what are the limits of law? And let's go back to Aquinas's understanding that law also not only has to have the right moral goal, but has to be, able to be workable in the particular society that we're in, or it's going to create a backlash and do more harm than good. And you know, um so I don't know whether it's going to be under the aegis of the pro-life movement or under the aegis of people who are concerned about, you know, retrieving a, a, a more complex and older, understanding of how law operates that's deeply rooted in the Catholic tradition. But I think we have to have those conversations. And I think we can't be intimidated by, you know, activists who think that if you don't agree with my means, my strategy, as well as my goal, you're um you're wrong and you're morally deficient. Uh, I, I just refuse to accept that because I think it's not rooted in the Catholic tradition which I've been studying for, you know, 30 years now.
0: Right. And I would think, again, of some of those things that might not square folks perfectly in line with the, you know, the mainstream pro-life movement, including working for parental leave or expanded right. health care or like Medicaid, uh, you know, was, like, but, Medicare uh, for part
1: all. Part of it is, you know, you've got uh, to, I really object to the notion of of thinking about issues as some almost disembodied from their context. And I'm really uh, actually put off by some of the images used by some elements of the pro-life movement where they show the unborn, you know, just kind of like in a a side cut, you know, just in the middle of a woman's body. If you think about what it means to be a human being and, and, and what it means to be in a community, you need a relationship between that baby and that mother. You need a relationship between that baby and that mother and the broader family, and you need a relationship between that family and other institutions, including churches and schools and and, and public health. uh, That's all going to flourish. All issues in the Catholic tradition have as their ground and their goal the common good. So pulling an issue out of its context is distorting what it means to promote it. So I think we need to reinscribe the abortion issue back into its place within a broader concern for the common good.
0: I do want to ask a little bit more about...
1: Babies need to eat. Mothers need to have a relationship with them. How do you encourage women not simply not to have an abortion, but to take responsibility for building a relationship for that baby in uncertain times?
0: I do want to ask again about the idea of that law as moral teacher, the pedagogical function of the law. I think an example used in in our class was the um, Americans with Disabilities Act, okay. which again provided provisions for folks with with disabilities, maybe in a way that the culture wasn't ready for in some ways that like right now, if I go to a building and i like if it doesn't have wheelchair ramps and a bunch of handicapped parking spots, for instance. I think, what's going on here? What's wrong here? But that when that law was passed, that wasn't necessarily the kind of predominant feeling. And so in some ways, that law came before the culture was ready for it, but then helped kind of shape the culture and shape views of people after it had been passed. And I wonder about like the same thing for whether it's gun prohibition laws, pro-life laws, other types of things that maybe we're not ready for, but could they help Could they help shape the future? Could they help change minds uh, even if they are enacted before our hearts have been changed?
1: Well, I think the answer to that is yes and no. It depends on how you frame the law. So when I talked about the Americans with disability law in my book Law's Virtues or in the class that kind of came out of that, Faith, Morality, and Law, one of the things I was trying to say is you have to have the ideal – Um, And the ideal was to see of the Americans with Disabilities Act was to see the person before you saw the disability. That's why the name is so important. It's not the Disabled Persons Act. It's the Persons with Disabilities Act. And the goal was to facilitate their autonomy, their ability to actually make contributions to society. Autonomy wasn't understood just as my self-fulfillment narrowly, but as my ability to contribute to the common good, despite some of the limitations I have. Um, And, you know, and then solidarity, seeing ourselves as in relation with people with uh, disabilities. All that is to the good. But what was really good about that law was that it recognized the balance of ideal and, you know, real. So it required governmental you know, change in, in buildings, especially in new buildings. It didn't require all uh, older buildings to be retrofitted at once, which would have created a backlash because people wouldn't have had the um, obligation to do it. It put, um, it put obligations on employers to hire people if they had to make a reasonable accommodation, but they didn't have to take heroic measures to hire people with disabilities. So it was calibrated. The way I always look at it is we all want to be physically healthy, right? But if you get some, you know, demon gym trainer from hell who comes in and says, get off that couch. You've been on that couch for three months, eating Cheetos, watching vampire diaries, you know, in the pandemic. And you get up and run a marathon. We all know what's going to happen. You're going to generate a backlash you're going to generate resentment and you might even generate a heart attack depending on how many episodes and how many Cheetos. So, um, so you need to move people along at a pace they can take. And you also need to pay attention to what they see as competing values. Um, how, how do they see it? So when you think about gun, you know, ownership, you know, It's one thing to say, well, no private citizen should own guns. Um, You know, this was just meant for militias, you know, in the Constitution. We don't really have that many militias now. So let's get rid of gun ownership. But then when you start talking to people in different parts of the country, um, you know, you see what gun ownership means and how they think about it. So you may say, well, can we get rid of a certain class of weapons that really isn't used or aren't used for legitimate purposes, at least in the domestic, you know, country like rapid fire or, you know, um, bump stocks or or things of that sort. Um, So having a conversation that isn't all or nothing, I think, is important and thinking about, well, what are our values that we hold in common? And is there a, you know, a Venn diagram overlap where we can pursue some goals that also you know, allow us to say, well, yeah, it's understandable if you're on a ranch, you know, you might need guns for certain purposes, uh, but maybe you don't need, you know, an assault rifle and maybe we can distinguish.
0: No, I find that uh, very helpful. And I know you have to run soon. I just wanted to ask kind of one last quick question around this, you know, whole topic we've been doing this series of, of, um, podcasts on faith and politics, which again, are topics you're not supposed to discuss ones that often don't go together, but you've made your kind of whole career at those intersections thinking, maybe not politics, but thinking about the common good and faith. And there would be a lot of voices who would say kind of out there, faith doesn't have any place in the public square. Um, what do you say if you hear that?
1: Um, well, I, I think that, you know, I mean, uh, One of the things that disturbs me is the selective invocation of faith in the public square. What I would say is that I, as a Catholic, believe in a tradition that has a robust notion of the common good. And so my faith isn't simply private about what my own, you know, beliefs are for my own narrow, you know, salvation. It isn't simply about what's for me and mine. I'm not hiving off from the broader community to set up a little community of the saved and letting everyone else, uh, you know, go their own way. The Catholic Church has beliefs about what constitutes the common good, and I adhere to many of them. You know, I'm I'm not saying I believe every, uh, you know, last uh, judgment. I think there's room as a Catholic for critical engagement with the broader tradition. Um, So, I'm happy to be asked what the implications of my faith are for the common good, and I'm happy to have answers, you know, to give my answers, and I'm happy to engage about that. And and I, I and I wouldn't think it would be anti-Catholic. I think it would be mistaken, you know, because I believe this. If somebody said, you know, um, I actually don't think that, you know, commitment to labor rights is a good thing for this country. Um, And, you know, and I know you as a Catholic, you know, following the teaching of, you know, the Catholic social teaching, believe that. And you think that rationally, you believe not just that, but you believe that the reasons behind that. So I understand that somebody might not vote for me if they disagreed with my reason for the common good. I wouldn't take it as anti-Catholic. I would just take it as a disagreement about what counts as best for the country. So I think we need to be very careful when we invoke anti-Catholic labels. Somebody can disagree with us about what counts as for the common good. And I don't think that's anti-Catholic. I think it's anti-Catholic when they say you're a Catholic and therefore you have no right to say what you think counts as the common good. The disagreement, the debate, that's all very healthy.
0: Well, Professor Kathleen Cavaney, thank you again so much for taking the time. I really feel like I learned a lot and was back in school, which I I miss. Uh, And All right, great. Uh, So thanks again for all all you do, and um, we'll be excited to kind of see what you come out. Do you have anything uh, to promote, any upcoming books or articles or anything you we can send folks toward?
1: Oh, well, um, well, I, I th- I th- I'd I like somebody to look at my old book, actually. I know this is something, my Law's Virtues, Fostering Autonomy and Solidarity in American Life. I think it has a few things to say that are applicable at this time.
0: All right, great. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. And all the best for you the rest of uh, your semester.
1: Thanks. You too.
0: AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.